Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 106. I'm Nigel Walsh. In today's episode, I'm going to be taking a step back. Today we're talking about women in InsureTech. And we're going to be talking about what their experience has been like, what the challenges and opportunities are in the landscape, why inclusivity and diversity is incredibly important, of course, and what the future holds. So as you'd expect, as always, I'm not alone. I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests. First up, and a welcome return, although I'm not so quite sure after what she just said to me, Sean Billy, founder of Bright Blue Hair, Green Kite and EDI. How are you, Sean? Well, I'm still in a little bit of shock that having been part of 101, making my debut there, yes, you have actually invited me back again, which is lovely. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, for those who don't know me, um, I would describe myself this afternoon as an insurance and insurtech obsessive, an AI ethics in fintech nerd, a financial inclusion and ESG deep learner. And yeah, I do try to offer practical support for greenfield firms and also established firms to grow with fintech in the 2020s. Fantastic, Sean. Welcome back. I can't believe we did get you back after all the bloopers from last time, but those are saved for a very special show. Alongside Sean, making her InsureTech Insider debut, we have Megan Bingham-Walker, co-founder and CEO of Nancy Technology Limited. How are you doing, Megan? Very good, thank you. Thanks very much for the invitation. So um, what we're building at Nancy is an automated insurance product uh, for goods in transit insurance. And uh, we were very happy to have the invitation to come on here today from Sean because we've been working with GreenKite since we're recently FCA authorised. Fantastic. Welcome aboard. Looking forward to hearing lots more about it. Alongside Megan, we also have another debut. Welcome Charlotte Gregory, Senior Associate at Capital Law. How are you doing today, Charlotte? Good, thanks. And thanks very much for having me. Delighted to be here. Um, as you mentioned, I'm a Senior Associate at Capital Law. We're a commercial law firm based in London and Cardiff. Um, my team in particular spends a lot of time working with insurtechs and other financial services businesses, helping them grow and scale from the regulatory side. Um, but I've been in insurance for almost 11 years now, so that's my first love. And still smiling about it. Well, that's exactly what we want to see. And last but by no means least, we're also joined by Jen Passant, Head of Customer Experience at Bought by Many. How are you doing today, Jen? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Um, so yeah, thanks again for for me as well for for having me for it's my first one um yeah so i'm head of cx at bought by many many pets i've been there for about 18 months um and look after the cx for the uk sweden and us teams they're they're the only places we're in so far but watch this space and i've been in financial services overall for about 20 years i can't actually believe it's that long um, and in CX for about 14 of those. So previously at Aviva and LV and now at Bought by Many. Fantastic. Great to hear. I'm a huge fan of Bought by Many, Mr. Mendel and Charlotte and all the other team there. So it's, uh, I'm delighted that you're, uh, that you're joining us. So thank you all for coming. Uh, let's get started. Let's start this conversation by talking about what the InsureTech landscape currently looks like and how we got here. Sean, start us off. What did the InsureTech space look like five years ago in terms of diversity and inclusivity? Right. Well, the bad news is uh, not that much different to today, in my view. Right. There are some good. There's some good highlights. There's some good spots to to focus on. But um, five years ago. Uh, so sort of 2016, which actually coincides with the time when I uh, went independent, actually. 
So from a diversity and inclusion perspective, as I say, not that different to today, actually. If we look at the bits of the ecosystem that actually are quite well represented on today's um, show, Nigel and team, who's getting the money? Still really low figures. Not much diversity and inclusion there. Um, Who have the big jobs? Uh, C-suite, functional heads, not much difference at all, actually. Um, Where are the female founders? Well, we're fortunate to have Megan with us today. There are a small clutch of female founders, but, you know, the the diversity stats are no better. In some instances, they're a lot worse than they were. However, okay, five years ago, what's different and what's good is that actually diversity and inclusion are actual real topics of conversation. They were not. In 2016, I can tell you, they were... They were really side of desk. I mean, it was almost like saying you were a vegetarian to have that kind of conversation. It had very little to do with the business. My experience tells me that in either established businesses who perhaps were slightly more aware because as established businesses, they had different um, expectations, particularly from shareholders and institutional investors. But today, let's focus on on the good stuff today. Actually, diversity and inclusion are things that you not only have to talk about, you have to be able to measure, you have to be able to have a, a point of view, you increasingly have to be able to tell that story with data and not just intent or signing pledges, which are all great. They're all great drivers of change and indicators of aspiration, but it's getting a lot more solidified now, Nigel. And I think COVID has really accelerated that. It's really helped, particularly with regard to seeing colleagues as human beings who are not only essential to growth, but who also require us to take care in hybrid working and to think about wellness, not just mental wellness, which again, mental health is a topic that, you know, goodness me, certainly when I first came into insurance in 2008, you never heard it. And I think it's it's only in the past two or three years that that has become something that it's good to talk about. It's a mark of a, a responsible business to talk about mental health. So I think COVID has helped us to see colleagues more as humans, which has then also meant that organizations of all shapes and sizes are starting to take employee wellness in all its guises much more seriously. And that has led then to gender inclusive working practices, because actually hybrid working has made lots of stuff. There's been more progress on gender inclusive working practices as a result of organizations retooling for COVID than in the past 25 years, which can only be a good thing. And then I guess from customer point of view, inclusion from the point of view of who are our customers and who are we building our business for, I think it's still a little bit sort of beyond the pale, although Jem and others might um, say, no, it's actually squarely where we're at in the world of CX now, Sean. But what I do see is that the ESG developments that we're seeing across the piece are going to mean that financial inclusion, but also inclusion of customers in the most broad and widest sense is, again, it's going to enter the warp and weft of running a business and not just be a special topic for the odd special conference. So there's just a couple of thoughts, Nigel. Well, wow, this is going to be a, both a privilege to, to talk through this one and a challenge, I think, in some instances as well, because I'm sitting here obviously, as a middle-aged white man. Uh, and I often see myself not as the problem, but almost a group of individuals that are seen as the pale, stale and male, I think Amanda Blank called it out years ago, uh, of the insurance industry. And hopefully, it's on, it's on all of us, in essence, to, to do something about it, lean in to go change these. And some of the things you've highlighted, whether it's gender, whether it's 
ESG, whether it's mental health, I do think the pandemic, personally at least, has accelerated lots of these things and made much of the invisible now very, very visible. We're, um, I said to a friend of mine the other day that's changing jobs because she felt that being a new mum and turning up to calls off camera with um, uh, whilst breastfeeding a child or whatever else was seen as unacceptable. And in essence, she said didn't feel comfortable and decided to, to move on. So I think there's so many things that in one place should be acceptable and yet are still seen as either taboo or unacceptable that we have to change attitudes and, and so much more moving forward. Um, let, well, let's get some of these other challenges out of the way as well. Gemma, where, where can it be difficult for women in InsurTech? You've been around financial services, actually, to your point earlier, for quite a while. Have you seen this change? What sort of challenges have you experienced so far? It's a really interesting question because I did my first head of CX role at Aviva about 14 years ago. And at that point, it wasn't about being a woman in CX or being about a woman in InsurTech because InsurTech wasn't really a thing. CX wasn't really a thing. It wasn't recognised as a discipline until quite recently. Um, it was about just being a woman in a corporate environment and in insurance. I mean, I was one of two heads of out of a group of 40-odd operational heads of at Aviva. There were other female heads of in other departments, but we were few and far between. Um, and as someone who is very young and it being my first job, um, I think if a CX had been a really established um, profession at the time, maybe that might not have even happened. I might not have got that job. You know, I just was really passionate about wanting to do something different. Um, and there was a there was an opportunity there. I have stepped out of, uh, I wouldn't call InsurTech corporate per se, but I've stepped out of this kind of world a couple of times and, and taken breaks and lived in different parts of the world. And for me, this time around, it has felt really different. Um, so I left Aviva in 2015, had a bit of a break, worked at LV for a couple of years, had a bit of a break. And I've been at Bought Many for 18 months. And it's partly that it's insure tech, not big corporate insurance. But it's partly that I think there's been a huge shift. And one of the things that I would absolutely echo from what Sean said is honestly, not that we haven't been trying and people haven't been wanting to make a difference, but that we were forced to because of COVID. And so the retooling and the different approaches have meant so much more change that have leveled the playing field in many, many ways in different aspects of diversity, whether that's being female or any other aspect of diversity. We at Bought by Many and Many Pets have a massive commitment to diversity and inclusion. So for me, it's felt very different being there anyway. Not that the places I worked at before don't have that commitment. Things have just changed over the 20 odd years that I've been in insurance. So I think for me, that's been the biggest difference is that I've stepped into a type of job that I've done before, but for a different type of organisation, an insurtech organisation. And in the world of COVID, I started this job two months later than I should have done because I couldn't physically get a flight from Asia where I was living back to the UK to actually begin the job. So it was a whole new landscape just from day one. Uh, that, that's really interesting to hear. You mentioned it a few times, things have just changed. Do, do you think that's true for the incumbent organisations, either the ones you've worked in previously or um, what you see in the industry more broadly? I'm not I'm asking you to call out any particular company, but do you think it's just an evolution of where we are now and what we're seeing day in, day out? 
that everyone's moved forward? Or do you think InsureTech has actually been able to start with a different blank sheet of paper and design by default it to be better? I think it's probably a bit of both. I don't think it's one or the other completely. And I do think that much as I struggle sometimes with social media and how intense it can be and how involved it can be and just how much everything is online and everything's accessible to everybody, that also has been huge in terms of what back in the day would have been called grassroots movements, right? So there is just a groundswell of noise on so many different topics that we're at a point where power holders or the policy makers, and I'm not talking about in organisations necessarily, but maybe more broadly in governments and beyond, can't ignore those things anymore. And so as a consequence of that, I think we've seen a lot of change. And I think that's actually about tech generally, and it's kind of agnostic of whether it's a corporate insurer or an insured tech, that's about the world and how the world is changing. Um, But again, that was hugely magnified during a time where we weren't making in-person connections and more and more of our connections became through a screen or some form of social media or, you know, being on Zoom or Teams at work. Um, I do think that insure techs have a different opportunity when you start anything that seems fresh, which doesn't appear to have the baggage of a 200-year-old organisation, of course you have the opportunity to write it from scratch. And at the same time, I think that comes with its own challenges. I'm sure we'll get on and talk a lot more about representation a bit later. And But in order to find um, people who are um, in the right space to do certain C-suite roles, Sean mentioned it earlier, there are fewer people maybe there are fewer women who are ready or available to take those roles. And that's not because there aren't enough women who are capable. It's because of a timing thing. If we didn't see that representation 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, when we were choosing our careers, that might not have been a career that we went into, which means it's going to take time. And we're seeing great changes. And at the same time, it's going to take time um, to start to see um, the real sense of equality in the C-suite that I think we can see. It's also, it also feels like education. I remember showing my nine-year-old daughter and I remember showing her a picture of a board of an insurance organization that happened to be all men. So I think about page seven and I said, Hey, do you see what's, what's wrong with this? And she didn't see anything wrong with it. So I think it's on me and my wife, Emma and others to, to help educate why that can't be representative of, society and school and things that she's going to be growing up into so it, it was really interesting to see that she didn't see anything wrong with it at this age so we're, we're without question correcting and, and and pointing these things out charlotte let me come to you quickly if, I don't, if you don't mind how do you see it in the regulatory sector what's what's your perspective um for where you are well i think firstly our direct team is quite unusual we buck a trend in that our team is almost all female and we have a leader that's female. Um, That's, I think, probably unusual in the legal sector and in broader regulation when we're thinking about insurance. Um, Thinking about what I see in terms of our client makeup, actually, there's still misrepresentation, but 
women are possibly more likely to be in a risk and compliance role. There's there's a bit more of a, a gender balance there. And again, that's interesting to see what the psychology around that might be when we go back to looking at gender stereotypes and, you know, are the risk averse people more likely to be perceived to be women? So a woman might end up in a role that's on the risk side rather than that's fronting the business or, or a founder perhaps. So there's still definitely within reg generally um, a diversity, but perhaps it's a bit better than in some other areas of the business and, and within our teams. But I think it's an interesting point that I was thinking about earlier on, and you've alluded to it, in fact, um, yourself when you were talking about what, you know, what your daughter sees. It's a constant challenge for every one of us, whether we're male, female, um, or however we identify, and whether we consider that we're in a majority or a minority, to really look at our unconscious biases. And that's an everyday challenge to me. And, you know, that's not just about insurance. And that's where I think it becomes a real complicated but important conversation around this benefits everybody. You know, and it's not just insurance. I mean, when I went to the rugby on Saturday and I watched the women's game and they'd given them a pink ball and you're like, okay, is that necessary? And in some ways it shouldn't matter what color the ball is, but we know why it was pink, you know. So it's just a classic example of what are we doing in our everyday lives to challenge convention? And that's not to be adversarial because, you know, the other thing I think on on this whole topic is that, and I'm sure we'll get to it later, we have it to them and us, you know, and, and this, we're talking about women in InsurTech, but this isn't a women's issue. It's a societal issue. And actually there are lots of benefits to more. them. And that's where I think when we start to be able to have those conversations that are perhaps less adversarial, and women finding solutions to what's perceived to be a woman's problem, that's where I think we'll make, you know, real breakthroughs, whether it's reg, whether it's CX, whether it's founders, throughout all of our teams within these businesses, because people will, I think, be more ready and willing to come to the table, even though they know that they don't have all of the answers. So a bit of a convoluted step away from your first question, but it was interesting no, but, picking but up really on what you said. Yeah, it's really interesting. And actually, your point you made about having a slightly different team than usual and, and having a female lead, was that one of the factors that decided you, that impacted you joining or not? It was certainly a plus point. I mean, I guess I'm lucky in the sense of I've always had quite a clear direction that I wanted to be a solicitor. And OK, I'm sure you've had many a conversation with guests previously where they've said they've fallen into insurance and as did I. But actually, when I realised what a fantastic um, opportunity it was in terms of a sector and then became very interested in InsurTech and look at, looking at what was happening there, um, I would always have been driven to do that come what may, whether my leader is a male boss or a female boss. And in fact, I've never really luckily experienced too much direct adversity personally by having um, male mentors, but it was certainly a, a plus factor of, of seeing that female leadership, definitely. It, it really interesting. And, and I work for a, a, a woman now, a lady called Yolanda Piazza, who's outstanding. There's a reason actually I'm here at Google. Uh, and she also worked for, a, for another uh, lady, uh, Kirsten, who's the president for North America. So for me, that was a, 
large draw to the character, to the, what they've built and whatever else. So I think it's actually, for me at least, inspirational in, in, in many different ways. As in a complete aside, I wanted pink Peloton shoes, but they were only available in lady sizes, which drove me mad. Yeah, so I couldn't get them. So it works on both sides. I don't, anyway, we go off that one. Megan, let me come to you before we move on to the next section. I mean, as a founder, what's been your experience like so far in, in, in this? How would you, how would you, how would you um, address this in, from, from, your, from your perspective? Um, well, I mean, also building on the point that Charlotte just made, so we're already a very diverse team within ourselves. So we are actually two female founders. So my CTO and co-founder Anna is also also a woman. We're obviously different, you know. Rate, you know, we have diversity of race. So, you know, so we have an intersectionally diverse team as well. Um, you know, we've got people based in in some different countries as well. So, um, and I think definitely, I mean, we're recruiting at the moment, and I think having a diverse founding team has, has certainly encouraged a, a really high caliber of people to actually want to come and join us and work with us. So, you know, that's that's been a really, really encouraging to see. But then when we look outside of our organisation, I mean, you know, similar, I think, to what some of the other speakers were saying before, you know, we're you know, really privileged to work with, you know, strong female-founded organisations like Green Kite, for example. But, you know, obviously when we come to our discussions with investors and with capacity partners, then we are speaking to a much more traditional, you know, male, older male audience. So, um, but, you know, obviously, there, you know, we're not the only insurance tech in this, um, I guess, in, in that sort of, um, you know, in that basket, you know, we're also inspired by, you know, many of the other insurtechs who've gone through a, sort of a similar journey. And, you know, we, you know very, we're very inspired by the other diverse teams that we're seeing coming through as well in the market, in the, um, you know, in the marketplace. And, uh, you know, so for example, InsureTech UK has recently established a uh, diversity and inclusion subcommittee, which I'm part of, um, because a lot of insurtechs, you know, really want to take diversity and inclusion very seriously from day one, so that you can really, you know, as Jen mentioned before, embed that into sort of the DNA of the business, you know, when you're at that early stage, as you, you know, see, you know, that becomes part of your culture and your ethos as you, as you grow, because it can be very difficult, you know, a few years down the line to try and sort of reverse engineer that it needs to, it needs to be something that you're thinking about as you, as you build from day one. But I think the other point is I really wanted to say, I really like the point you made before about, I think it's so important that it's not just about women and, um, you know, making the case for diversity as it were. I think we need to have everyone around the table, you know, of, of, of all sort of walks of society, because as Charlotte mentioned, it's a societal issue. So I think that it's really important that, you know, you're, you're part of this, this discussion as well today. Uh, I, I, honestly, I can't agree with that more. One of my personal frustrations is always seeing the head of diversity and inclusion, either being female um, or black or otherwise, it's everyone's problem. I'm banging the table now, I'm going to get told off. It's everyone's problem. And therefore, I should be at that table as much as everyone else, making space for others and so that the voices can be heard accordingly. Uh, I was just going to say, the other thing I was going to say was, um, I don't think I've ever heard of a female CTO co-founder. So that truly is a first, uh, Sean, unless you can think of or name any others in the insure tech space. And I've seen quite a few fintechs over the years that I don't want to say have toxic culture, but have a predominantly male. And your last point about embedding it and designing it from the outset, I think is critical. Unless you think about that from the from day one, I think it's really hard to course correct going forward. It doesn't address, of course, all the challenges around access to talent, which is a huge issue regardless, male or female today. Um, but unless you design by default with that baked in, then I don't think you're going to have much success going forward at all, or it's going to be a lot harder for everyone to, to get there. 
I, I think that is a change from from five years ago um, because I uh, my you asked earlier whether you thought that InsureTech had started off. I can't quite remember the phrase you used, Nigel, but whether it was a sort of conscious decision to disrupt that part of the established order, yeah, the cultural stuff. I don't think it was part of the plan at all. I think every single egregious cultural failing that you could find in an established business, you could find them and new ones of their own in pretty much every fintech and insurtech as standard because actually the disruption wasn't about culture. You know, a football table and being able to wear casual clothes. Actually, you know, the casual clothes is 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 a signal. It's a sign that we're not the same, and that's got some merit. But it doesn't make a different culture. It doesn't hide the fact that people were still playing by the same rules that they were that the people that they were claiming to disrupt, who by the way were funding them also, because let's not forget where the funding from InsureTech came from. So I think. That is a change. I do. I do sense that that there is a. Con- it's a business choice. It's a purpose choice. It's part of the growth plan to bake in stuff that's now becoming increasingly bleeding obvious, right? About how you make sustainable profits and you be- you increase your EBITDA, right? I mean, and I and I think that's a good thing. Let me come back to Jim, if I may, quickly, because I think actually, if I move on to the next section, if you dig into some of the challenges, the opportunities. Um, and the importance of women occupying roles in this space. I mean, how tough was it for someone identifying as female to not only enter the space, but more importantly, be heard? And I think you've had some good experience across all the organisations you talked about. So I'd love to get your perspective on what it's been like and how it's changed over the years. Yeah, it's changed a lot. Where I am now, bought by many, many pets, um, you know, our CEO, Stephen Mendel, obviously male, his of his eight direct reports, half of them are female. And that isn't luck. There was obviously a conscious thought to making sure that his C-suite is uh, diverse from a male-female perspective. And at the same time, those women are epic, right? These aren't just, you know, people who can do a job. These are people who are absolutely smashing the jobs that they are doing. So that those people exist, right? We we are some of those people. We know they exist. And even in my team, my boss, Oki, he has half a dozen direct reports and myself, our head of compliance and our head of claims, a female. And they're quite, CX is is not so much, but a claims job. It's very traditionally a, a kind of a male space or ha- certainly was anyway. So I think where we are now is absolutely a place of being heard, being um, taken seriously. We've, when you're in a growing business, a business that's growing really fast, recruiting a senior role is actually a, a really key moment, whether that's at a head of level or at a, an SLT, you know, C-suite level. And so, you know, that's been consciously done. We've been hired because they absolutely want to buy what we're bringing, right? And they know what they're getting and, and, and we bring it. If I think back to becoming a head of for the first time 14 years ago, my process to get there, and this wasn't about the organisation I was working at, it was about the sector at the time. Let's be clear about that. Any organisation of that size I was working at, I would have had the same experience absolutely hand on heart because I knew other people working at the equivalents, right? It was a it was an interesting journey because 
I had to take on board some real feedback and not about not being bolshy, not being bossy, not being arrogant. And I had to put all of that stuff that makes me great at my job in a bit of a box for a period of time to prove that I could play the game so that when I became a head of, I could open the box and say all the things that I've been trying to say for the three previous years, right? There's definitely a point where it's allowable because you're in a, in a shape, in a role, we've put you there. And so we're allowing you to say those things now. Now, I think that still exists to a point. Um, but I think it's very much less so now as it was where, where I'm talking about kind of 14, 15, 16, 17 years ago when I was trying to make my way up. It's it's really interesting. I think that your your point about being heard though, and and the change over time. I like. I mean, I haven't heard, I haven't heard the word hoffs and doffs for a long time. So you've brought back a smile to my face with hoffs and doffs. Um, I don't know what that means, the, 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 by the way. That's a new oh, one it's, to it's me. Very, what does it mean? Go on, Jem. You go on, Jem. Did I even say that? You said no. You said hoffs, and I I knew what oh, the head sorry. was. Yeah, previously heads so off. Yeah, is, that's a, that's, that's super old school corporate speak. So heads of and directors of. <laughs> Hoffs and Doffs. Okay, thank you. The, you. You can't go wrong with an acronym. So Sorry, not, not at all. Try not to do the, that. The, that. That was all my fault, by the way, Jen. Don't, don't worry at all. The um, the other one about uh, other imbalances, and, and maybe I come back to you on this, Megan, is who gets to speak about insurtech? Jem talked about claims being very much a male orientated world of, of 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 old. Have you seen that as a female founder? Have you seen this people not expecting? Um, women to talk about these areas that are traditionally male or have you not encountered that at all? Well, we don't really know. Well, we don't really come from an insurance background, so we wouldn't have necessarily know that, you know, women weren't allowed to talk about this sort of thing. So I guess that's one of the benefits of being an outsider coming in, into the industry. <laughs> but actually yes. saying that, we are just Good in the process you. of appointing a third party claims administrator. And we had uh, the, took the call with them and it was four men who all looked pretty much the same. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so maybe, uh, you know, you kind of get instilled in, in these things as, as, you, as you meet people. <laughs> but didn't that make you feel like this is ridiculous how how do you not look or sound or even at least make an effort to to be like me um i think i mean i think we pick our battles at the moment you know as a startup we have you know there, there are so many over hurdles to overcome and you know i think it's you know obviously we want to be fighting the fight every, you know everywhere but i think we're just focusing on making our business you know sort of a diverse place to work and then we just have to work with the the part the third party partners that um are, are really going to help us move to the next level so you know for example with that process we did speak to about three or four different companies we actually did have one uh, two of them were represented by women and uh, i think two of them were represented by men but unfortunately in that case we did go for the the male uh, <laughs> the male oriented company just purely based on on merit and I, and I will caveat my comments as well, to be fair with, that I will always hire for talent and capability first and foremost, because we want someone to do the job as best they possibly can, right? Um, but but by balancing it to make sure that you give everyone equal chance and, and you, you end up with the organization design that you set out to do in the first place. I see, Sean, you're about to give out to me. Well, give out. I'm not quite sure what that means either, but I'm learning lots of new phrases this afternoon. No, I think this is something that I've learned relatively recently, right? So I'm, I've got the enthusiasm of the newly converted. So I was fortunate enough to be a part of a road testing of um, employer ability training from Inclusion Scotland, who do this wherever, actually, but they just happen to be called in Inclusion Scotland. And one of the many things that it did for me, apart from me making the instant change of 
changing my font size so that that's accessibility 101, by the way. Top tip, 14, you, you're all nodding, so you all knew this. Great. 14 font um, point font size and a sans serif, so none of the quiggly, nice squiggly twirls on the letters is, is accessibility 101. Well, I've got with the program, guys. I'm sorry to have been a bit slow. But the other thing that you're saying, Nigel, that sparks off the, the revelation in me was actually equality isn't enough. Sorry, it just isn't. Equality is not the same as equity, right? So what does that mean? Because I, I mean, I, that gave me a headache when I was first thinking about it. I really had to think about it. And the image that, that Inclusion Scotland used to kind of help us to understand this was there's a wall and it's it's one size and there's a tall person, a very small person and a middle-sized person. Now, in order to get to the point where everybody can see over that wall, um, you know, they, you can have a box perhaps. But the point is, equality says everybody gets the same treatment regardless of whether they need it or not. The tall person does not need a box. They just see further over the wall, right? Equity is about saying the person that needs the box to stand to look over the wall gets the support. And I think that's where we're at with diversity and inclusion across the board. And I include financial inclusion in there as well for underserved and overlooked customers or vulnerable customers, whatever language we want to use. So I actually, I've had this moment of understanding, no, equality is not enough. Sorry, we're beyond that. It's equity now that we need. And what that means is we can't just wait for for stuff to happen. Um, and, And by just waiting... I mean company policies as well. I think we need more than that. We need the drivers that are going to really make firms and individuals change what they do. And some of that is regulation. Some of it is market forces. Here endeth the sermon. Amen. I, I agree with you, by the way. And I think Sarah, uh, before she left, always used to talk about being invited to the dance and asked to dance or you know, getting the invite versus actually being asked to actually dance. And I think it's it's only until you start breaking it down and start having the conversation that we all start becoming more aware of it. I was talking about financial inclusion to someone this morning um, and, and accessibility to lots of products and whatever else going forward. And, and even down to the extent during one of my training videos that I, I, I watched when I joined here, if you're a left-handed individual, you'll take a photograph on your smartphone and more often than not, it used to be upside down. So why for a large percentage of the population is the photograph upside down? So one of the things that we do around design and experience is making sure that regardless of whether you're left or right-handed, that it all comes through and that you do have um, the, the, the same experience at the end of the day rather than making sure you're sending the wrong things through. Charlotte, you were, you were nodding away and smiling. Do you want to jump in? Well, I am a lefty and I did not know that, Nigel. So I'm very pleased to, to hear that. Um, the thing that I was going to say, and Sean's point, I think it's really important that people in business understand that you can achieve giving somebody the right box to level the playing field, to continue that analogy, without that being a tokenism. Because no one wants to be a token. And then you go back to all of the the studies around language and if you're interviewed as a male supposedly some studies will say you're interviewed on the basis of opportunity but if you're interviewed as a female you're interviewed on the basis of experience and it's all those kinds of things which mean having these conversations now which as you know I think we've all pointed out 
yes, we all understand it, it's not enough, but the talking, surely if we're being genuine about it and, and people aren't just box ticking, should lead to action because we're forced, our brains are very lazy, we're forced to stop just taking the easiest route to the answer and, and our brain will say, the easiest route to the answer is to f- familiarise ourselves and get comfortable to do business with somebody that looks most like us. And and we just have to accept that. And it's all layers on layers of, of this kind of um, challenging the way that we see the world. And you are right. I mean, the regulator is making big noises about this now. So we, we can't just sit here and say, oh, we're all doing it out of the goodness of our own hearts, because frankly, unfortunately we aren't the regulators are there and so are the markets as john mentioned what's interesting to me is and i think this comes to the customer point that a lot of us have been speaking about part of the mission statement of many insurtechs particularly in the the earlier days was a recognition of serving the customer now i think as insurtech is no longer in its infancy and we're seeing some seriously scaling businesses you need to remember your focus on the customer. And part of that means not making the same mistakes that perhaps others in incumbents gone by may have made. And part of the reason that we know we can fall into that trap, as we've discussed around insurtechs and fintechs, is because the makeup and the background and the school and the introduction and you know this person and you know that person is still there because that's how many people, and that's not to, you know, you're not doing a disservice to anybody to say that you've done very well and you've utilized your connections. It's saying, well, I'm going to utilize my connection and actually I still care about the people that might not have the same connection as me. And where do I go and find those people out and make sure that they become part of my network? Um, So it's all there. And I I think, Sean, you're right about the, the equity point, but what, what I sense is that some people would use that as an opportunity to conflate issues and say, well, we're not going to have tokenism and we can't just, we've got to employ the best person for the job. Okay. But what does best mean? And what does your policy say best looks like? That's the whole point of equity though, Charlotte, right? That's the whole point that it's not, it's a level playing field is all anybody wants, but in order to level that playing field, we, we, Equality isn't enough, right? It's always going to be about the person that's best placed to 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 do the job, providing the recruitment process is designed properly, re- providing the language describing the job is described in a way that's inclusive as well, and not written, constructed to get the either inadvertent or advertent end result. Just really briefly, Nigel, I just want to say to you, Charlotte, you know that research you were talking about, about the different kind of conversation that that female founders get with VCs than the male founders. Seema Kinder-Johnson was intimately involved in founding Skype and then her set up her own payments business called Nuggets. Hugely experienced. She lived that. That is an actual lived experience from her as a founder, that she was, it was all about the issues and the risks for her, as opposed to what she knew others, that other male founders were having, which is, um, tell us how big the prize is. So you're spot on. I, I am, I think in having been through this personally, I have to say the equity piece is really important. And actually, the right answer isn't always the easiest one. And it might mean you spend more time on training and more time on 
um, upskilling and giving people the opportunity, but the net result and the long-term outcome is the right outcome. Charlotte, Charlotte Crosswell always used to give that to me. She goes, you're one of those. You're one of those fathers of daughters, aren't you? And maybe I said to her, maybe it was the trigger point that made me realize that my wife was being treated unfairly because she was a new mother as a teacher at university or whatever it might be. Um, and didn't feel that was, that was the career for her going forward. Um, before we move on, and Irene kills us completely, but Megan, how do we encourage more women to to step forward, not just about their experience, but their expertise as well? And I mean, I love I loved your energy when you said we're from outside the industry and we're barging straight through it. So how do we get more Megans? What was your trigger? Um, I mean, you know, you know, we we just got really passionate about, you know, the, you know, I guess, well, the customer really. So, you know, the what we could do, you know, we we come from more of a sort of fintech background. So, what we could do with our expertise and our our passion for for automation and for having a much smoother customer journey, you know, which is the data enabled and how we could bring that to the industry. And, uh, you know, really, um, you know, I think there are a lot of women coming into the industry. You know, we are seeing, you know, uh, you know, new new female founded startups, diverse startups. Um, you know, in, in, in short tech, all, you know, all the time. But I think, you know, the obstacles they come up against are the one that Sean just mentioned. So, you know, when you go to investors, you know, when you go to capacity partners, and you know, I think, you know, you you are going to have to overcome that. Uh, you know, I guess the impression that people, you know, look to, to male founders to have these big visions, big ambitious visions, and they, you know, they ask them to sort of, you know well, really talk about how big the prize could be. But as a woman, you are getting slightly different questions um, that you're having to tackle much more about the risks and the things that could go wrong. And, you know, so, you know, so, and, and that's what, you know, all of these founders really have to overcome to really believe in their vision, to stick with uh, and, and, to, and to really, you know, sort of, you know, help to bring that to, to get the right people around themselves to bring that to, to fruition, really. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, we're just going to take a quick break and we will be back very shortly. What if you could reimagine payments for the insurance industry? What if you didn't have to rely on old complex payment services and infrastructure? Instead, what if your payment provider could help create a user experience that actually stands out? And when it comes time to pay out a claim, it can do so instantly to millions of bank accounts across the UK, Europe and North America. Trustly are leading the charge in unlocking the open banking payments revolution we are seeing today. Their open banking platform redefines the speed, simplicity and security of payments for more than half a billion consumers across the globe. Visit Trustly.com to read more about how they help insurtech companies make payments a key part of their digital first approach. Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve, and Soldo, and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash get a pulse demo. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So looking to the future and building a better one, this is the topic for our last section. Um, I guess the question here is, why is it so important for women to occupy all types of different roles in insurance and insurtechs in general? Charlotte, can I start with you? I mean, it seems like a, a moot question, really, doesn't it, given what we've just talked about? Yes. Um, the, the reality Let's is... Let's leave it there. I'm just... <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to go now, Nigel. Yes, yes. it's a moot question. <laughs> the, <end. Yeah>, thanks. <laughs> the, the reality is 
diversity of thought in all its guises produces better business results. And apart from the fact that it makes work a nicer place to work, if you have that diversity and you learn about different people and different cultures and different backgrounds and everyone brings something to the table, brutally, if it makes business more money, I don't understand why they're not all for it and jumping all over it anyway, is the cynical view. Um, and I think we just need to get over ourselves as a society and accept, move away from our hangups about why we might have done things incorrectly in the past and just focus on the looking forward. But again, you know, that's not, that's not just down to what the flexible working policy says, for example, it's cultural change. Part of it, you know, as an example, paternity leave we need more men to feel that they can come forward to take paternity leave or shared parental leave in all its forms to be to enable women i mean we still we might not have traditional family units but we still need a recognition that there are the next generation of little people growing up who need lots of different carers and carers of all guises and we need to recognize that that doesn't fall to the woman in the his, you know, which it might have done twenty years ago, for example, you know, no one when you're out at a work event and it's an evening, if you're a man, no one asks you who's you know looking after your kids. But if you're a woman, you probably have been asked that. You know, it's all those silly little things which sound ridiculous, but those are the things that we need to to move on from. And, and the reason is because it will be a better place for your for your daughter and for my nephews and for my niece and that's why it's important and if we're looking at the regulatory aspect of it it will be a better place for the regulator and the regulator will be happy with you i think society though and maybe it's we're of the generation now on the call that is seeing the transition of the traditional what it was into something that's much much different than it used to be it's i'm not gonna say it's common but it feels more normal to have no children or kids out there that have two mums or two dads or four of each in some cases or who um, wouldn't even recognize know, male and female yeah wouldn't choose to completely and i think it's seen now more as accepted i mean i've been i was at an insurance event a few months back now i think it was and i chatted to a guy he said to me oh my husband and i just think it's a really lovely open attitude in general and i don't think that would have existed you know years ago i think people would have shied away for or kept it quiet and i just think the industry or society is much more open and 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 i don't want to say accepting is the wrong word to use but more we're, open we're to that ourselves. actually we're all different yeah it's the right way to say it. actually we are just getting over ourselves and i think our kids or the next generation will be almost our saviors to this going forward um and the other thing you mentioned was about um flexible working and parenting uh, um and one of my favorite examples is actually from an insurance company is zurich insurance and when they added something like um part-time full-time or job share to the uh, or to all their jobs i think they saw something like a 20 percent increase in all applications by providing more flexibility and i see it now i you know i work us hours out of the uk at the moment and i do the school run in the morning so it's providing that flexibility in my old world my traditional nigel hat would have been I've got to be at my desk by eight o'clock. And now I realise, actually, I'm under school on at 8.20, stuck down a lane somewhere. But, I mean, dare I mention, you know, the, the C word, which I'm sure we're all sick of hearing, COVID. But that, I think, one of, one of the positives that I heard anecdotally from people was that 
um, there was a lot more visibility on what happens in the home. And shall we say there's a more traditional environment where it's a man, wife and 2.4 children um, with everybody being at home, there was a new appreciation of, oh, this household actually takes a lot to run and we both work. I mean, working mom, that's a hilarious phrase, isn't it? I mean, if that can die a death. And I don't have children and that irritates me. Um, you're not a working dad, are you? You just, you're a dad or you, you, you work. But it's things like that. And actually, you know, men have wanted to become more involved and, and want to be there to do all of the, the things like the school run because they realise that they're, they're missing out. They've, they've been reminded of the fact that you can live in a world that exists where you can have a, a serious career or, you know, and you can also contribute in ways that you choose to in your, your home life. So I think that's one of the benefits of, of the last two years, nearly. I, I agree with that. And perhaps it's actually the empathy of men seeing other men in environments that says, actually, you haven't got a desk or you haven't got capability or you have got kids running around and a dog that needs to walk every 30 seconds or whatever it might be. Um, so I think there's been, an, I think, COVID has made us all more empathetic to everyone's individual scenarios and, and situations that's there, which is positive for male and female, I think. So um, j- just on that, actually, Gemma, if I can come to you on this one, given, given your background, um, from a customer side, is there a need for female-orientated insurance products? So having been in pet insurance for the last 18 months and before that not in insurance for a couple of years, I would say I'm not as close to this as I used to be. Uh, broadly speaking, what I think is that there is a need for a diverse group of people to be involved at the design stage of any product. And I don't think we necessarily know the answer, therefore, to what the product is going to be until we've involved the broadest group of people. And I think um, I'm genuinely not trying to dodge the question. What I'm saying is I don't think we're in a position where most companies have set up a, a, a design thinking or however they do it, right, that actually has sufficient diversity in it. Not saying no one's done this. I'm just saying generally speaking, there's more diversity needed much earlier on. And a lot of the time it's going to be really important that some of that diversity, that thought, that input is not coming from within the organisation. So Sean alluded earlier, and this is a whole other massive topic, but briefly Sean alluded earlier to um, consumers experiencing vulnerabilities, for example, or whatever it might be. A lot of the time, the people who are designing product, whether that's a digital tech product or a practical actual insurance product, are not the people who need to use that product. And we will struggle to understand how it feels because we are not people who are in those situations ever have been or maybe ever will be. Could be all sorts of situations. And so we need to just be much, I'm going to use Charlotte's face, we just need to get over ourselves and trust that if we go and talk to consumers or customers who actually might want to use a product or have a need, that what they're telling us is real. What they're telling us is what they actually need. What they're telling us is useful, not to be um, talked down or that's an edge case or no, I don't think we'd really sell that or 
okay, but these are the people that, that actually have the requirements. So let's go and understand what those are. So yes, quite possibly there are, there's a need for more female orientated, you know, generally speaking, it's just the same thing and someone slaps a pink sticker on it and calls it, here's advertising it in women. Oh, we'll, we'll come back to that point. <laughs> but I think it's more about understanding actually what do people need? And I think that has changed quite dramatically in the last, again, couple of years. Um, I can't believe it's been going on that long, but because of COVID and everything else, that people have um, different requirements, different needs, different lifestyles. They don't drive their car so much because they're working from home or their income isn't as um, robust or has the longevity that it used to have. And so we need to think about how we can be more flexible in all kinds of product design, but also in all kinds of support or ongoing processes that we apply to whether it's insurance, other financial services or any other kind of product. We've got a lot of catching up. We being everybody, all organisations, all types of products have got a lot of catching up to do, I think, in terms of actually engaging um, the consumer in, in what they need. Well, what you're what is what you're saying? It sounds to me like unmet customer needs, and the the needs you have to solve for are male, female, or all. But you should understand your customer first and foremost, and design accordingly for that. I think, yeah, that's much more succinctly put than what I said. But yes, that is what I'm saying. Um, and I think it is a mistake to for us to be quite as rigid with our bracketing or boxing. So as Charlotte said, somebody might not want to identify in any particular way in any type of category. Um, and, you know, imagine when you, all those forms that you have to fill in where you have to talk about how you identify in all kinds of different ways. And in some respects, that's really useful and important when it comes to, for example, understanding the diversity and inclusion of an organisation and getting to a place where people are comfortable enough to share that, even anonymously, when it comes to kind of servicing for customers, actually recognising that things aren't binary or black and white like they used to be in terms of ticking boxes or filling forms is going to be one of the really important parts of understanding how we design for what people actually need and how they need to use products and services in a different way now. Nigel, can I just add something in there, if it's all right, just to say, totally agree with getting over ourselves as insurtechs and, and innovators actually in, in any firm and actually practicing what we preach and being customer focused rather than just doing research that then gets ignored and not turned into real stuff. As, as Gemma has actually, Gem has very eloquently described actually for me. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Because there's structural inequalities here that, uh, that come from the way that society has been built and lived over many years. So whilst I totally 100% agree, let's do the right job by customer and really listen and be really clever and really innovative to meet unmet or unarticulated or badly understood needs. Let's also recognize, you know, we could be sat here having a conversation saying, why are there not more female homeowners? Well, that would be because until 1979, you couldn't actually take out a mortgage as a woman on your own. You had to have a man and your husband to sign off on that. Right. So that's an example, I think, of where, you know, let's not forget that there are structural inequalities here that are shown by also shared intersectionally, particularly through race as well. 
um, that mean, you know, that that people are at an instant disadvantage, particularly women, because of, of the workplace patterns that we've all grown up with that are now having to change because society's having to change, right? We can't ignore those structural inequalities. And that's where the equity piece comes in, I think, for me. I am. I was, I was going to share another experience and, and again, personal one. You're learning about my life today, folks. Um, I actually came across this from my mum when my parents got divorced. So my mum went to get a new mortgage and she'll never listen to the call. So, this, so she won't give out to me. Um, but when she went to get a mortgage, they weren't designed for a woman who'd been married for 35 years and then wanted to go out on her own and start again from scratch. Never mind be able to sign for it, but, but just no idea where to start. And I think now there's a whole series of products which is where this question comes from in theory, designed specifically for those unmet needs. If you spend 35 years in a marriage and you're now coming into a, a situation where you have to go out on your own and you have no other choice, what do you do? So it's been hours and hours of time with my mum and I and others trying to work out how we got something that just was, I'm going to say, alien to her entirely. It wasn't designed in the right way so that she could understand what her options were as someone that never dealt with it before. So that's, that's for me, it's almost a decade ago now, I think, actually. But that's for me when I first started encountering this and I never really thought about it before that. Megan, what, what's your take? Have, have you got a perspective on a need for um, female-oriented insurance products specifically? Um, I mean, our product isn't isn't oriented to to females um, at all. So I, I mean, I can't speak sort of from the on this on from a personal basis. I mean, I think the you know the whole sort of concept of sort of painting it pink is you know it's more of a sort of a lazy uh, a way of uh, you know sort of trying to tick a box. You know, and I think it's because there isn't really a genuine feeling behind it. But you know, I think you know on the other side, you know, done very well. It you know obviously it's about looking you know much more broadly at your consumer. You know your consumer consumer base and, and trying to target your, your products much more appropriately. So, you know, it's like a spectrum, really, um, in terms of, you know, how you can, you know, position your product and how you can market it effectively. I, uh, I agree. And actually, there's a whole host of examples on the sister show here, Spotlight. They've spoken to a whole host of remarkable um, women in fintech. So Selena from Black Girl Finance, Alexandra, and Jessica from, you know, Bank Like a Woman and the Hilda Project and so many others. I mean, the, the, the UK has had examples in the past. I'm going to say it and, and get uh, people's perspectives. I mean, you've seen previously things like Sheila's Wheels and Diamond Insurance. Are companies like this doing more damage than good? Charlotte, can I come to you on that? I'm going to give the lawyer's answer and say it's not as straightforward as that. <laughs> because <laughs> if, if, the, if the company's genuinely servicing an unmet need, then there's a benefit to the product to my mind, if that's truly the case. If, you know, and a lot of what we've been speaking about around um, finance more generally, so, the, you know, I remember going a few years ago to looking at the results of a study just on that point saying, you know, traditional marriage breakdown, there was a whole retirement pension gap for many women who had gone through that traditional household model, got divorced, found themselves that they were going to be in massive pension deficit. So all of those real issues around money and and who deals with it traditionally and, you know, does Theresa May put the bins out or, or not, that kind of, you know, from the extreme to the trivial has, has a factor. Um, I'd like, but we also need to, you know, my point there that I was coming to is marketing can be, a genuine change that's needed. And if you're changing your marketing basis because you think 
there's a genuine product behind it and it would be more attractive to a certain type of person. And I mean, look, I'm not a marketing expert, but I recognize that, you know, men and women, when we're looking at it in that kind of binary traditional way, will be marketed to differently, perhaps. But if it's just there to be um, a slogan or something else, then no, I, I don't think there's any there's any point to it. So you've got to be really thinking about the purpose behind your product. And if you're only marketing it, I mean, there are some things, you know, actually now we can't necessarily do that anymore because it wouldn't be seen as equal. And actually, you're, I think in today's world, if you said, right, I'm going to design a new product and I'm going to target it at women, well, what about, you know, non-binary people and, and people who identify in different ways? Then you get, you know, am I cutting off a whole market potential, you know, my whole a, a part of my customer base who actually, you know, if we look at those communities, they will again face more adversity and be even more marginalized. So, you know, it, it it's fact and degree there. Um, Sheila's Wheels and Diamond, I think they were probably of their time and they did something for recognition of a product that was needed. But then of course, you know, the court said, well, actually you can't discriminate on in that particular example in the motor insurance world. So we need to be mindful of that as well, that you're not just inadvertently ending up discriminating against one group because you're trying to attract another. You, you've got to be, you know, these are complex arguments. You can't just say, I'm going to stick a pink label on that and make it look pretty and have minimalistic looks because I know that that woman shops in that shop and she's more likely to buy that. You know, what, what's the purpose? It's really interesting. You, your comment about marketing versus product actually has just got me thinking. And, just, and looking at, you know, two sites as an example, one Sheila Wheels is in pink today. And then if we look at um, Sam White's outfit in Australia, Stella, his insurance for women by women, has a very different feel to it. And I think, you know, as you, as you say, rightly so, the perception or the market readiness and attitude in the UK versus Australia is very, very different. I also said to someone earlier, it's ironic about within this today, I said to someone earlier, the, ge the gender directive to, for me personally has penalised 51% of the population with higher prices as a result of trying to get equity. I'm, maybe I'm wrong on this, Sean, and you, you'll come back to me in a sec, but I, I know we're, we're on time. So let me finish with this one last question. If we go around, around the room, if we may, we started out asking Sean what the previous five years looked like. What are we hoping to see over the next five years? What's our ultimate goal here? Megan, can I start with you? I'm not sure that's fair, but let me start with you if you don't mind. What does the five years out look like for us in a society where we have more women in insurance, more women in insure, insure tech, and a much better outlook on society? Well, I think we start with the customer. I think we would definitely have insurance products that that really, you know, have a you know a rich and diverse and inclusive um, impact on on you know all the various the types of customers that we're all serving. I think within the organisations we have a you know diver a decision making group of people with as Charlotte mentioned before, so the diversity of thought and you know a diverse you know and also you know some you know, working practices that encourage that team to evolve and, and shape as. as we grow and that you know there are opportunities in terms of access to finance uh, for you know co you know companies of all different shapes and sizes and that the and th that 
that diverse sort of, I guess, startup and insurtech base is reflected in some of the larger companies as well. I, I love it. I love it. Jim, your, what's, your, what's your wish for the next five years? I'd like to see that we start with inclusion, whether that's for the customer or for the people that work within our organisations or for the people who potentially might work in our organisations. I'd like to see us collectively coming together to try and shift some of either the regulation or the market angles. So, for example, something like getting rid of the poverty tax, that's not going to happen until either a regulator or the people in the market come together to try and to try and shift it. For me, I think one of the big things that we can do is we can work together in non-competitive ways to talk about what inclusion looks like, um, both for customers and within our organisations. Although I think within our organisations, we we have more control over that independently, individually. Um, Sean and I have talked about this before and about the fact that actually, if we're going to do right by customers and consumers who might have different needs or who might be experiencing vulnerabilities, whether short-term or long-term, that's generally speaking the same customer base. It's generally speaking the same group of people. And so actually, if we were just to put aside some of the, the, the ideas about not being able to share information or competitively what it might look like and talk about what we can do in terms of how inclusive we are, um, I think that's, I, I understand that may sound a little naive. I think it can be done in a really smart way that's not naive. And I think it can be done in a way that humanizes um, the industry and, w- and what we're trying to achieve. And it would loop us back to what, what, we start, what we started with in the first place, that idea of disruption and changing the market and making it better for everybody, whether that's fintech or insurtech. It loops us back to that. It keeps us real. It keeps us honest. It reminds us of, of kind of where, where we started out. And maybe there's something we can all come together on or sign up to, or I don't know what it is, but, you know, something that doesn't have to be about competing. No, I, 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 I like that. The word you use there with resonates hugely for me is humanizes. You know, how do we make this human to, to everyone? And I, I do think your point you made earlier about the pandemic about opening up everyone else's world and living rooms and bedrooms and kitchen, dining room tables has changed people's attitudes dramatically or people's perceptions dramatically. Charlotte, what about you? What's happening in the next five years? I think what I would really like to see is perhaps either, you know, a result of or or one of the developments from what Gemma was just speaking about. And it's about still having these conversations, but with actually everybody really at the table. So, you know, actually, it's great, Nigel, that you as a male are here in this conversation speaking. I think, okay, you can't speak completely from your own experience directly, but you have, you know, female members of your own family and you can consciously see that. When I go to lots of these events or I speak at panels, yes, it's actually women do need a voice and they need a platform, but where is the let's talk about diversity and inclusion and actually we've got everybody around the table because it's as important to the white male CEO and he feels it's as important to him as it is his female report or 
whatever it might be, for example. I think that's where I would really like to get to some genuine, and I don't know what that is. You know, it's not about um, diluting the space that's already small for somebody if you're a woman or you're not white or you don't subscribe to a particular gender. Actually, the the white middle-aged middle-class men need to buy into this conversation now and really need to buy in. So Nigel, yeah, but that's how it will work. You know, you will tell your friends. And unfortunately, my poor husband is a big experiment of mine on all of this because I constantly challenge because he's in the majority. And I said, well, okay, well, but what about that though? And and actually, would you talk to your friends about that? And And you just, you know, it goes back to that unconscious bias point. Most people aren't ill-meaning in most scenarios, but let's recognise actually that we can do more if we just sat and used our brains that can be very clever when we want them to be. I'm not going to comment on your husband's experiments, (laughs) (laughs) but but I agree with your sentiment without doubt. And before that, I'm not sure this is a wise move. Um, Sean, I've given you the most amount of time to think about this because I know you're going to come up with something outstanding. Where are we in five years? What do we do? Right. Okay. So actually, you know, it's really heartening, isn't it? That um, I think influential opinion formers like yourself personally, Nigel and 11 FS have gone out of their way to not just talk about equality. That should be a standard. There should never be an all male panel. Although I'm quite in favour of all all female panels until there is true equity, right? Yeah. Uh, Your experience today will kind of dictate whether or not that becomes something you do more of, Nigel, right? Um, So I think, you know, it it is you you and the whole ecosystem of influential uh, influence shapers and formers are still obsessed and hooked on the drug of mostly male founders, as we've discussed, there are all kinds of reasons for that, and mostly male functional heads. And actually, given the importance of AI and machine learning to modern day insurance and insure tech, right, the stats, the diversity stats there are even worse than they are in insurance. So if you can't tug those, they're, they're an actual another ingredient for a lack of diversity in product design, but also in internal cultures. So Okay, so those are really important things I think that we need to actively address and influential influential people like yourselves can do that by consciously saying we're going to have diverse conversations and we're going to have not the usual suspects. You know, don't talk all the time about unicorns. Talk about the real people as we have on this panel today, the real women who are actually massively important parts of that InsureTech ecosystem. But, you know, they might get, I'm sure they are on panels and roundtables, but not as much as as the other types of speakers that we're used to. But my main point, Nigel, actually is you kind of sort of the way that you talked about um, the change over the next five years, I think you're you're really quite optimistic and you made it almost sound like it was going to happen. I, on the other hand, I'm slightly pessimistic and I want to say the changes that I think all of us on this call want to see are not going to happen without us fighting energetically, but cleverly and inclusively, as Charlotte's saying, to make it happen. So I don't think it's inexorable. And I think there are three things, though, that, that bode well. Okay, so the first thing is employee activism. Our colleagues are just simply not going to put up with this shit anymore. I think employee activism is a really strong force for change. And therefore, we should all go out of our ways, um, a, a way to encourage that. 
I think those um, the activism around rebalancing who gets to write the algos, who gets to engineer the products, who gets to be a data scientist. I think, again, that is not going to be left to chance because, quite frankly, we've learned the lessons. If you leave it to natural organic evolution, we're going to be here in 150 years. And the nature of AI and ML in today's world is just too impactful. It's just too important. It just makes real people's lives too hard for it to be left to chance. So I think that's another bright spot. And my final bright spot is ESG and particularly the S. So everybody is going to be scored on the S. And the kind of internal cultural things that that Jem talks about so eloquently, you're going to get scored on it, mates, and it's coming around the corner very soon. The kind of stuff that Charlotte's talking about as well, and, and Megan's talking about with regard to how insure techs are structured. Yeah, the regulators, you know, kind of getting with the program now and, and working out we can't just wait to have the same level of scrutiny and support for you when you get massive, because that's five years of activity effectively, to my mind, below the radar. So I think those are the three things that, you know, the three bright spots, the three developments, but it's not inexorable. And um, just like we're not living in a post-feminist world, you know, we're going to have to be active participants in in making the change that we want to see happen. I, I couldn't agree more. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed this debate. I was excited and nervous about it. Um, in, in just in fear of getting it wrong, which you kind of highlighted at the very beginning. So thank you for that. Um, but I think that's the important point, right? And the important point is, if we're afraid to have the conversation, either male or female, we'll never get anywhere. So I don't normally sum these things up in any way, shape or form. I was just going to say, I think there's some good examples out there from people like Eileen Burridge, who will point you online to uh, female investors. I've seen some good stuff from VCs that won't invest unless they've got a diverse board or team. Um, the comment about everyone at the table, I can't stress that enough. It's not good enough just to have all men or all women. And I'm, you and I won't agree on this, Sean. I won't speak in all male panels. And equally, I would rather have mixed panels in every opportunity possible rather than having all male or all female. But that's my, my personal uh, preference. And I think the, the last thing, and I think you've all said it, is actions speak louder than words. Don't be afraid to have the conversation. Go hire the right people um, to to do the job in the first place design your organization with purpose so all the things that we've talked about i think are really really uh, strong and important there's some good examples but they're not sean to your point we're not going to get there unless we're deliberate about it so let's be really deliberate about where we wanted to go look really really good debate um really i've generally enjoyed it and as i said i was also nervous so uh thank you all so much for joining me where can we find out more about you sean where can we find out about you Okay, so you can find out about my work at Green Kite on, on the website. You can find out about me and the other things I do at Bright Blue Hair, um, my LinkedIn profile. Megan? Um, so you can find out about me. So my company is Anansi and our website is uh, www.withanansi.com. Fantastic. Charlotte? You can find me, Charlotte Gregory, on LinkedIn. And you can also look at my profile and my firm's profile on our website, Capital Law. Fantastic. And last but by name is Lisa Jem. You can find out more about me at Jem Passant on LinkedIn, and you can find out more about Bought by Many and Many Pets on our websites. And you'll find me and Sean fighting on Twitter, probably somewhere about e-scooters or something else. So uh, at Nigel Walsh. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make the show better and helps others find the show too. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or InsureTech Insider. 
Find us on Twitter at Insect Insiders or email podcasts at 11ms.com. Thanks very much. And as we said, be deliberate in our actions. Goodbye. Goodbye.